Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Uh, Welcome to Q. So if you were browsing magazine covers in the 80s, you know, checking out at the grocery store, you probably saw the face of Molly Ringwald. Probably saw a lot of it. In fact, if you took even just a little bit of pop culture from the 80s in, you probably know Molly Ringwald really well. She's best known for roles in films like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles, these movies by the filmmaker John Hughes that are seen as, like, generational for folks who grew up in that time. She'll tell you, though, they're weirdly becoming generational for all generations. Anyway, that led to Molly being on the cover of Time when she was only 17. That's back when being on the cover of Time meant you were like the most talked about person in the world. Even before that, Molly was nominated for a Golden Globe when she was 13. But after that, Molly kind of stepped away from that intense fame. You'll hear her talk about that because almost no one does that. They either try to sustain it or it sort of fades away on its own. But no. Molly moves to Paris, starts writing, starts translating, acts a little bit, makes a jazz album. And now Molly Ringwald is in this new show called Feud, Capote versus the Swans, where she plays Joanne Carson, the second wife of Johnny Carson, who was a close friend of the writer Truman Capote at a tough part of his life. So we asked if Molly Ringwald would come on the show to talk about that new role, but to also give you an idea, like in this celebrity and fame-obsessed culture, what is it actually like to be at ground zero, right in the middle of it, and how do you step away? Here's my conversation with Molly Ringwald. Hi, Molly. How are you? Hi, Tom. I'm great. How are you? You know what? Thanks for asking. I'm all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, do, I'm not doing too bad. Congratulations on the show. Oh, thank you. It's. Uh, I just found out it's the number one watch show right now. At this At this stage, is that still exciting for you? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's better than it not being the number one show or it's better than no one watching it. Sure. Yeah. I guess by that bar, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, it's, it's a great show. I mean, camp and, and glamour, but also like, I think does a really good job at showing the complication and pathos that was Truman Capote's life and New York society at the time. Was there something yeah. specific about you that resonated uh, with the story when you read it? You know, I've just always been really interested in Truma Capote from the time I was little. I mean, I, I literally, my first job ever, um, I mean, I don't know if it was really a job since it was community theater, but I was in a Truma Capote adaptation of The Grass Harp when I was three. And uh, <laughs> and so it was uh, an author that I was always interested by just because, you know, well, who is this guy? You know, I, I feel like I always knew him. And when I was growing up, he was still alive, but mostly, you know, uh, kind of falling apart on national television. You know, he was on the Johnny Carson show. He always kind of, you know, he had that that really crazy voice. My, what I originally wanted to be when I was a child, I went to the. I was mad about vaudeville and tap dancers, and I used to just, uh, that was, I wanted go. to go to Hollywood and be a professional tap dancer. Nothing wrong with that. All good fighters have to have that kind of moves <laughs> and learn to dance. You know, I was just always intrigued by him, and then, of course, you know, when I grew up, I, I read his, his books and really thought that he was an incredible 
writer. So I was already really familiar with the whole story with the swans. And when I found out that Ryan Murphy was doing it, I was really excited just because it was something that I really wanted to see. And then when I was asked to be a part of it, I was even more excited. You, so, you, yeah. you never came across him or anything? You never like in a, in a room somewhere and he was over on the... Because I, I looked up the years and you're right, there was a few years crossover of you being you know, very well known and, and him still sort of being on the scene. No, no, I never met him. Um, and I only remember sort of you know, seeing him on on television when I was little. And I, I, I feel like I wasn't really, you know, in the public eye yet. Um, I was still I was still too young. So, yeah, we we never actually crossed paths. And unfortunately, I, I would have loved to have met him. But I know people that knew him, like, you know, I'm friends with Debbie Harry and, you know, she knew him actually quite well. Um, well, maybe not quite well, but, you know, they they actually hung out at like Studio 54 and, you know, with Andy Warhol and you know all of that, but I I didn't do that. Yeah, I've I've had a few people on the show who have known him over the years, and they, they always seem to tell me that the myth li- lives up to the man. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that he was really a, a fascinating um, person, and you know, I I could I could watch, you know, I've watched documentaries about him. I think I've watched every you know Capote film that's been done, and you know, and I'm still interested. Uh, I think that he was really an incredible writer who really kind of lost his way a bit. You know, I think that he, you know, he really wanted to be a part of this high society and it's, it really kind of did him in It sort of, um, you know, really kind of sidetracked him a bit. I mean, that's kind of where we, where he, he it all starts to fall apart uh, for him, you know, in, in this series, uh, you know, at one point he's disinvited from celebrating Thanksgiving with his friends and your character, uh, Joanne Carson takes him in for the holiday. You know, for people who aren't as familiar with Joanne Carson's role here, can you tell me a little bit about her relationship with Truman Capote? Yeah. Um, Joanne Carson was married to the famous talk show host, uh, the host of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson. And uh, when when she met Truman, I think they lived in the same apartment complex in New York, actually, um, you know, when they met. And then and then she moved out to California, I think probably when The Tonight Show moved to California. Um, and then she ended up divorcing Johnny Carson um, and then kind of became a little bit of a social outcast herself because, you know, she went from being married to the this incredibly powerful man, um, you know, the person that everyone wants to know in Hollywood, uh, to, to really, you know, kind of being on her own out there. Um, so they were sort of outcasts together. I think, um, you know, at that point, uh, Truman really was sort of, uh, cast out of his social set after, you know, writing this, this expose, this thinly veiled expose (laughs) of, of all of these women. Um, so, you know, I think that they were really good friends. I just tried to sort of, I don't know, kind of create my idea of, of who she was, um, and, you know, and also just how she served this story. I, I was ultimately playing a, an interpretation of her uh, by, you know, uh, Robbie Bates, who wrote the script. Yeah, like a, uh, like a, I like how you put that, like a refuge was how I was thinking about it, but also sort of a fellow outcast for for, for Truman yeah. Capote. Um, well, well, I want to talk a little bit more about Truman in just a second, but I, I want to come up to your uh, own sort of coming up as an artist. You grew up in a really artistic family. Your dad was uh, Bob Ringwald, a really well-known jazz pianist. 
You recorded your first album when you were six, uh, singing with your dad and his band. I actually have a little bit of that. I want to. I want to play a little bit of that. <laughs> Thank for you. God, no. <laughs> Nobody knows you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how down and out you could possibly be as six, six years old. <laughs> I love that you chose that song to play because there's there's a reason why I was taught that song. Um, I I it's kind of funny. I I had you know I was doing a lot of you know these sort of jazz gigs with my dad at you know you know festivals and you know he was he was really well known in this very small. Uh, jazz scene, which was, you know, very like traditional jazz, you know, really old timey. Um, and, uh, and so I would go and play, you know, like clubs and festivals and whatever. But I did this one gig where they paid me. Um, and I don't, I, it wasn't a lot of money, but for me as a six year old or whatever, it was a, a lot of money. It was like, I don't know, $50 or wow, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my parents decided they were going to teach me, you know, about the value of money and they were going to actually just give it to me and see what I did with it. And they were, you know, kind of, I guess, sort of hoping that I would, you know, save it. <laughs> But I didn't. I became like the big spender. And, you know, the ice cream truck would come and I would be like, hey, everyone, ice cream on me. And, you know, and it was like this feeling of having all these friends and everybody loved me. And then when the money ran out, then like the friends weren't as interested. And so my parents thought it was funny and they taught me that song. And that's, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up singing that song. Right, because isn't one of the lyrics like when you like... When you're when you're rich, or like when you got a penny, and then when they're gone, you don't have many, or something like that. It yeah, is sort of yeah. about money, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about money. I mean, in the in the original lyric is a Bessie Smith uh, tune. He she talks about bootleg liquor and champagne and wine, and my parents didn't think that was appropriate, so they changed it to like Twinkies, lemon and lime, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Bootleg liquor, cham- champagne and wine. Yeah, I took a, took <laughs> took my friends out for a good time. At the yeah. uh, at the ice cream truck, <laughs> yeah. I, this is sort of this is sort of a big question. But when you're performing that young, do you remember when you first started thinking mm-hmm. of yourself identifying as a as an artist? Um, I don't know if I if I called myself an artist at that age. I mean, I I I can remember vividly telling people that I was going to be a famous entertainer. Um, that's, that's the word that I use. I mean, it you're being been... intentional there about contrasting the idea of an entertainer. You, you know, you were, you, you wanted to be a performer as opposed to an artist. Well, I mean, that was, that was just the word that I heard. I mean, my, my dad, who was an incredible artist and had an amazing style, you know, when he, when he played piano, there was really, you know, nobody like him. It was just like he had the signature way of playing that, you know, I could recognize anywhere. Um, but he never called himself an artist. He never thought of himself as an artist, even though he was, you know, and he he would almost feel, you know, he was very modest. You know, let's put it that way. There there was like a, a serious modesty streak in my family. You know, uh, I guess artists just sounded too pretentious or, you know, to me, an artist at that age, an artist was somebody who like drew pictures and right. I didn't draw. Right. And I just I didn't realize that that I was an artist. But, yeah, uh, I, I think that came later. I realize now that uh, 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 next few questions I have for you sort of revolve around the same sort of question, which was like, 
what was that like for you? But what I mean by that is, um, you know, I think I, I, I come from a really strange, like sort of traditional music world, like traditional Irish music or traditional, like old, old time country music world. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that if your dad came up in that sort of, again, these scenes can be very intense and you can be a star in them, but they are these sort of like niche uh, worlds of music that don't have anything to do with like what's on the cover of People magazine, or I guess what would have been on the cover right. of People magazine. So then mm-hmm. when, when you when you come from that and you're on stage in, in Annie by the time you're 10 and you're on different strokes and the facts of life. Troops all here, huh? Ready for career day, girls? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yes, I decided I'm going to be the Joan Baez of the 80s. Listen. The skies are junky. The legs are chunky. The oceans are gunky. I feel like a lab monkey. Stop grossing up America, you turkeys. And then, as I mentioned, the Golden Globe for Best New Artist uh, for The Tempest, all the, uh, this all happens by the time you're 14. How are you dealing with, with all that? How are you dealing with all that attention? Um, I I think it was, you know, it was fine. It was it was something that I enjoyed doing. Um, you know, it, it was something, you know, on all the stuff that I did with my, my dad was like, really, it was really nice because we had this special bond and, you know, I, I rehearsed a lot with him and I would come home from school and, and we would rehearse for, I don't know, like an hour and a half or something, but it was like, it was special time that I had with my father and I was the only one in my family who had that. So, um, so it really seemed really nice and I enjoyed it. Um, I, I, w- I was doing what I wanted to do. And, you know, my parents obviously helped facilitate that because, you know, you, you have to have somebody like taking you to auditions and, you know, kind of uh, helping you to do that. But it was it wasn't it was never like anything that I was forced to do at all. No. Um, yeah. You know, um, well, I know some people who like, for instance, Jeanette McCurdy, who wrote that um, fantastic memoir. Um I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm you know, glad my mom died. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, her experience was very different than mine. You know, not to say that 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 being a child actor or a teen actor is necessarily a great thing for somebody's development, but my parents didn't know any of that. They didn't have any experience in in show business. Like they had this experience in a very niche, small community. And, you know, they felt like I had the special talent and they were doing whatever they could to help me. You know, when they look back on it, my mom says that she had to do it over again. She wouldn't have let me be professional as a young person. Really? You know, she. Yeah. Yeah. Even though everything worked out, but it was, you know, I think all of us sort of realized as time went on that it really is a a business and and it can be a lot and nobody I think expected me to sort of like blow up like I did when I did so you know yeah it was a lot but um yeah so if you want to know how it was it was it was hard sometimes it was great and and it was also difficult yeah you know survive like like anything else and I I, I mean I'm struck by your mom saying that to you maybe there's a conversation that needs to be had about before we start casting more child actors we need to ask ourselves as a society why we want child stars and yeah. and what's behind us as a society to want to make stars out of children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think that my 
parents ever thought necessarily that they were going to turn me into a child star. Yeah. I think that they thought that that I would be like building a career. I think that was like the way that we were all sort of like thinking about. I mean, I was little. I was just like doing what I like to do. And I just really loved performing and singing and acting. And I was just like, it was, it was just something that I clearly, you know, it was like somebody that, you know, is like a swimmer, which is also something that I did, you know, but they, they show this incredible like ab ability to, to do it. And they just want to do it all the time. That's the way that I was. Um, and so I think that my parents were thinking, okay, they we're just going to give her a head start on that and prepare her, um, you know, but yeah, it. I think there are parents who definitely do want to make their children yeah. child stars, and there yeah. are parents who are totally living vicariously through their kids. And you know, and it is a it is a thorny question, and I don't really know what the answer is to that because obviously there's still going to be parts for kids in movies. I mean, children exist, and they're going to you know. Are we just going to have it only be like AI until they're 18 years old or something like, okay, you can have an AI uh, <laughs> child. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I definitely think that, that their, you know, kids need to be protected and, and um, yeah, you know, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, but to, but to like, and, I, and I'll move on from this in just a second, but like to continue the swimming uh, analogy. Mm -hmm. So you were like a great swimmer. So like, say, let's say you were a great swimmer and you, and you wanted to be a swimmer and your parents put you in, you know, swimming early and you got really good at swimming. And even let's say like you got to the Olympics and you got a silver. So like really big deal. And still, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And still mm -hmm. like you reach the <laughs> apex, your apex of your career, but you're still like have some level of anonymity. Yeah. You're like, you became like, to use the analogy, like Michael Phelps, like this guy went beyond uh, swimming and became like Saturday Night Live and became like tabloid fodder yeah. and everything like that. Like when the John Hughes yeah. stuff happened, when 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club and, and Pretty in Pink happened. I mean, I've, I've read you talk about your discomfort with like considered part of the Brat Pack and all that. They burst onto the Hollywood scene in some of the biggest movies of the 80s and their burgeoning popularity quickly earned them a nickname, the Brat Pack. Well, today, some, like Demi Moore, are still stars, while fame and fortune have not shown so brightly on others. The highs and lows of the Brat Pack. It's our Entertainment Tonight cover story. That's a whole other level, though, Molly, of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was. And, and I don't even know, you know, what to say about that, other than that I don't think that... that you know, I, I don't think that I was prepared for that because I didn't I didn't really expect those movies to blow up. I thought that they would be, you know, successful. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really think that I, I I think that I was just thinking that it was just going to be like another job. I was going to do that and then I was going to do another job and then I was going to do, you know, another job. And I was just going to keep on like building. I didn't expect for it all of a sudden to, you know, become like a skyscraper like overnight. What's the um, what's the scariest part about becoming a skyscraper? Um, well, I think this the the hardest thing for me was that it I just became very visible uh, in a way that I wasn't totally comfortable with, um, you know, or that I just wasn't quite emotionally prepared for. 
um, because I don't really know how you can prepare for that as as a kid. Like it was it was just sort of interrupted things a little bit, um, you know, and and I, I still had just like a lot of growing up and a lot of development that I needed to do um, that I wasn't able to do um, in the way that I wanted to, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I yeah. wasn't able to do it, you know, privately. I wasn't, I, I never, I didn't want to be just this like train wreck of a, of a person. I didn't want to, you know, just be just embarrassing, like in, in front of the whole world. Yeah. But, but I still needed to do that. Everybody needs to do that. Or at least I think so. I needed to, I needed to kind of like go through some stuff and, and, uh, and I couldn't do it in in the public eye. I love that she was able to see the problems with it while she was in it. Uh, that's the first part of my conversation with the actor Molly Ringwald, who plays Joanne Carson in the new series Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Coming up, you'll hear Molly talk more about being a child star and getting all that attention after being in John Hughes films and what it was like to go through awkward teenager stuff in public. But first, you can't really talk about Molly Ringwald and The Breakfast Club without listening to this. Simple Minds and their iconic song uh, from the soundtrack to The Breakfast Club, Don't You Forget About Me. Good, uh, good, solid trivia question, don't you think? Like, who sang Don't You Forget About Me from The Breakfast Club? I feel like someone at your table would get get Simple Minds. But then again, maybe that's why I'm not on any trivia teams. More, oh, more with Molly Ringwald <laughs> after this. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We're the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the multi-talented Molly Ringwald, one of the stars of the new show Feud, Capote versus the Swans, which is about the author Truman Capote and his troubled relationship with some of New York's elite. Here's the thing about Molly Ringwald. If you wore like acid wash jeans, had crimped hair, leg warmers, like if you were around in the 80s at all, Molly Ringwald was a big deal. She was the star of these generational movies like Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club, and that made her world famous by the time she was in her teens. I'm really glad Molly Ringwald has some distance on it now because, I mean, she left it all. She sort of reclaimed her life. But it's because we talk a little bit about that. We're able to talk about our society's obsession with fame, what it's actually like to be at the center of it all, of losing your privacy, of experiencing all these very normal, awful, awkward teenage emotions that you definitely remember being 14 and just being 
a bag of terrible, but trying to experience that with millions of people watching you. As a teenager, Molly Ringwald's fame sent her into the stratosphere, but she was just a normal teenager. And we've been talking about how she handled losing her privacy and feeling everything in the public eye. And I wanted to know more about that. That's where part two of our conversation picks up. You were about like, uh, what are we talking here? 15, 16, 17, kind of? Well, when everything blew up, yeah, I, w- I was like, I would say around 16. <laughs> right, 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 right. So you were like, yeah, 50, 50, you, you were, you were, you were, I think what I'm getting at is that like, I was also once 15, 16 and 17 and I, um, yeah. I did stupid things and I embarrassed myself and I had a lot of yeah. weird emotions, but you know where I did it in private at my, <laughs> my yeah. at my mom's house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I didn't. I didn't feel like really there was any place where I could be totally private. Um, at, at, a, at a certain point, you just become, you know, fame is, is great in certain ways and that it gives you, you know, lots of opportunities and, you know, financial security and, you know, all of that stuff. And it, it can be, it can be really great in one way. And then in another way, it, it, it's, it's very isolating. Um, and, you know, and I and I have to say, I'm being like honest about it, but I, I really don't want to come off as as like boohoo, poor me. No, like, no. You know, like tiny violins here. No. Like, I, I have had like a very privileged life and, you know, and part, you know, some of it has been painful and like like everyone else. But, you know, I feel like as problems go, like my problems have, are pretty, you know, minor. So yeah. I'm grateful for the life that I've had. It's just been it's just been an interesting, complicated life. Yeah. I mean, when I ask these questions, it's I always I, I usually say I didn't say it to you. I always say gratitude is assumed, by the way, like we all, we, <laughs> we, you know, we we I, I assume already that you're you're grateful. But I, I never want that to get in the way of because I don't know. I, I think that we I feel like world fame at that level, Molly that the level you had is like relatively new because we just haven't had mass media for that long. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we haven't. So I think like we're still in the place of like examine. I think it's a, it's a newer phenomenon than people know world fame Mm -hmm. and like, and like mass media fame. And outside of like, Oh yeah, it it afforded me a good life and maybe some financial security. And I don't want to sound like I'm sad because people have other way bigger problems in the world. I I do think it is interesting to look at this new phenomenon from the people who've been inside of it. Yeah. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's definitely different and, you know, not what I expected. And I, you know, and I sometimes look at my life and I think, well, what, what would it have been like if I didn't become famous so early, you know, and I did sort of just stay on this like trajectory sort of like building because I felt like it was really kind of like disruptive and, and also those films just became so iconic. I mean, they, they still are. I mean, I hate to use that word because I feel like it's really overused. Yeah, but generational. But in this case, like, yeah, they kind of are. And not just like my generation. That's the thing that's that's so strange about them is that they just keep, they keep sort of, you know, I have people coming up to me and saying that, like, I define their childhood. And and I'm like, how old are you? Because you're way <laughs> younger than me. You know, I feel like they defined my childhood, but how can they define your childhood? But they do, because there's been nothing else that's, that's really sort of replaced them or been able to kind of, you know, I don't know that they're, they're really special, even though they're 
obviously flawed, which I've written about extensively. Um, they're flawed, but they're still special and they and they still speak to generations. So, um, you know, who who would have thought that? But, you know, but I think once you're a part of something like that, it's almost impossible not to be typecast in some way. Yeah. How how was the writing after all that? Like, so for, for people who don't know, you end up moving to Paris in the early 90, 1990s. I'm, be, I'm beginning to understand why, Molly, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm beginning to figure out why you might have done that. Um, yeah. How was the writing and, and, and translating? How was, how was that after everything you've gone through? It must have been sort of um, peaceful or a bit more cerebral. Well, I mean, the thing about writing is you can do it anywhere and you know you're not sort of relying on somebody else to tell you that you can do it you know that you're not relying on somebody to say like oh here's a job that you can show us you know what you can do which is basically when you're an actor unless you're writing your own material you're really sort of relying on somebody to to give you that the opportunity to to do what you do but that's not the case with writing you can do it anywhere and and i really loved the the autonomy um oh. and and uh and it was something that i had are already always been interested in it, it was what i excelled in in school um when i went to school <laughs> it was something that i really um uh, enjoyed i never thought that i would necessarily publish though it was just something that i did um and i and i wasn't really a great journal writer you know i didn't that wasn't really, I mean, I, I really admire people that, that keep extensive diaries. That wasn't my thing, but I was always writing stories and, um, you know, essays. And then I started to do, you know, uh, um, you know, articles on, on artists that I was interested by. And usually it was, you know, I have these people in my life and I call them like my writing angels. And they're usually just people that, that know I can write and have encouraged me and given me gigs because there there is a part of me and I think I got this from my parents that's just like a real worker like a real worker bee like it's very hard for me to turn down work and if I have a job I'll do it and if I have a deadline I'll do it and I've had these people in my life who have sort of encouraged me and said you know well I know that you like Stephen Merritt from the magnetic fields would you like to interview him for you know and I'm like hell yeah right. and so then I I did that and um yeah and then at a certain point I just you know got less afraid about putting myself out there as a writer and uh yeah and then did that I mean you were so gracious in telling me everything that you went through when you were a kid to hear this like shift to autonomy and stuff that you're interested in is is beautiful, Molly. Like it really is. No. Like, it feels like. No. Well, listen, I, I talked to enough. You and I both. You more than me, but I've talked to enough people who got on that train and couldn't ever get off as much yeah. as they wanted to. It's it's nice to hear from someone who kind of did. But you've kept acting. There's a few of us. Yeah, <laughs> but you but you have kept acting. You know, um, yeah. from France. You know, you've had you've been in, in Dahmer and. The Bear and and Riverdale and the secret. I just talked to Cole Sprouse like twenty five minutes ago, um, oh. and the Secret Life of the American. Do you want to talk about someone who has perspective on child acting? There you go. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, and, and somebody who's very talalented outside of at outside of acting. I don't know if you know you've seen his photographs. Photographer, or what you were talking right? to him yeah. about. Yeah, amazing photographer. Like really, really great. But yes, I am still acting, and I still 
enjoy acting. Um, I just feel like I want to be really selective about what I do. Like at, at this point, I just really want, you know, when you have, when you're a working actor, you know, over as long as I've been acting, you know, you don't always have the greatest choice of, of material or what you want to do, but you're still like, you know, supporting yourself, supporting your family, you know, you're doing what you can do. But I think at this point, I really just want to do stuff that I really love. And what's, and what's that? Like, can you, can you identify that? Like, what are you, what are you looking for? I'm really looking for characters who are interesting, complex, flawed, um, you know, women who are, who are moving the action of the story, who are not just there supporting, you know, a guy, you know, whether it's their husband or their son or, you know, like I'm looking for, you know, I, I want to sort of be out of like the mom purgatory as much as I, lo I love being a mom in, <laughs> in my own life. You know, I feel like it's not exactly what I'm drawn to in terms of, you know, material. And it's hard because we are really a hugely youth driven society. And, you know, I don't think that that's going away anytime soon. So, you know, I know that it will be hard to find those roles, but, but I think, um, but I think, it, you know, it's it's really what I want to do. And it's really one of the reasons why I'm grateful to Ryan Murphy, because, you know, here's this show and it's like all of these women are women that are, you know, around my age. Right. And, you know, and it was really exciting to, you know, not only be with other women that are my age, but be, be with these like extraordinary, you know, women with these like really amazing careers. Um, it was really exciting. Molly, um, what a, what a journey you, you you took us on today. Um, I really <laughs> I really do appreciate it. Take care of yourself, hey. You too. Really, I mean, Molly Ringwald is well within her rights not to talk about that time in her life at all. I mean, she's talked about it a lot, but not just to talk about it, but to, to have so much perspective on what happens when you're at the center of fame and and why we prize fame. Really interesting. My, my guest was the actor Molly Ringwald. You can find her in the series Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, out now on FX Canada and streaming on CTV+. And that's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Cole Sprouse made his name as a child actor. He was Ben on Friends. He was in the Adam Sandler movie Big Daddy. And he was uh, on The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody with his brother Dylan before retiring from acting as a teenager. He came back to be in the show Riverdale, and now he's taking on his most challenging role yet, an unspeaking role as a zombie in the new movie, Lisa Frankenstein, a rare conversation with Cole Sprouse on the show. See you tomorrow, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.